Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Hey listeners, before we get started, don't forget that you can sponsor an episode of The Dirt, which means that we research and talk about a topic of your choosing. It's just $25 and all of that goes directly back into the podcast. So go to thedirtpod.com, click the news heading at the top of the page, and then click on the image of our goofy faces that comes up. It says sponsor an episode. And that takes you through PayPal and you can put your topic choice right on the notes section of the PayPal page. We've really loved all the sponsored episodes we've done so far. It makes a fun and unique gift, too. Or you can just treat yourself. Okay, on with the show. And welcome to the dirt. And thank you for bearing with us during our recent hiatus. I'm sorry. <laughs> A podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And I am very excited for this episode. Um, still excited the second time we're recording it. Um, Oops. And so even more excited than I usually am. Um, and not it's not even about Bigfoot or anything like that. No, it's not. It's all about pots, ceramics, clay stuff. How did it take us this long to get to this subject? I've been holding back. I don't remember anything from when we. Do recorded you remember the first your epiphany anecdote? I do. I do. I forgot that I didn't write it out, and it just says, <laughs> "Tell us about your epiphany." So, um, I, I did have a ceramics-related epiphany as Recently? it as it is linked to archaeology. No, when I was oh. an undergraduate. <laughs> okay. Um, with you, uh, I don't think you're in this class though, but no, for this class, I was in high school. <laughs> great. <laughs> for this class at my undergraduate alma mater, um, we had to, among other things, learn to draw artifacts. And that basically entailed drawing a ceramics shirt. And, uh, we went upstairs to the museum collections at Bryn Mawr College and selected our shirts to draw. And I was excited because I like to draw. But what really blew my mind um, as I looked at the shirt to get ready to draw it was that there was a slight um, impression of the potter's fingerprint on that shirt. And I knew that that piece of pottery was thousands of years old. And it really just made the connection for me in a way that nothing had before that um, studying archaeology is about studying human lives and the very, very sort of faint traces of the everyday lives that people led. And that that was really meaningful for me. So while I didn't end up studying ceramics, unlike <laughs> other co-hosts of this podcast, they hold a special place in my heart. So I'm really excited to, to talk about them. So why do archaeologists study pottery and ceramics? Well, number one, there's a lot of it. Nearly every human culture has at some point used some form of fired clay for purposes that range from storage of food and water and cooking to writing or religious figurines. Um, number two, it's very, very durable. Other materials used, used by cute, humans. Yeah. Hmm? It's pretty cute. Yeah. 
it's it's a durable. It's like cute and sturdy. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) Other materials used by humans are far less durable. Paper, leather, textiles, etc. Those deteriorate a lot more readily than materials like metals, glass, stone, and ceramics. Of these four materials, stone and ceramics are the most valuable when looking at Neolithic cultures since they predate metal and glass. And, And they also, there's a lot of that because they stick around. They don't, they don't rot. Number three, pottery also often gets ignored, not by archaeologists, but by looters or casual collectors, because most pottery remains end up broken and thus of little interest to people who might want to um, loot a site and sell things um, on, on the black market. When other items then have long since been removed or plundered, a broken potsherd will remain for archaeologists to study. Number four, pottery is common across social classes, but it usually differs in quality or ornateness. It's also used for a lot of different life activities, from everyday cooking to the fancy stuff that you put out when your guests come over. So pottery provides a good overview of the day-to-day activities in a society. And then number five, finally, pots break a lot. Because of this, people in antiquity had to replace them just as they do in modernity. So if you're lucky, you get a pretty good record of changes in ceramic trends through time as people replace the things that they broke. Um, and then I want to bring up the point that before when I was talking about my, my pottery epiphany, you'll notice that I didn't say shard of ceramic. I said sherd, and that is correct. A, a piece of broken ceramic is called a sherd, S-H-E-R-D, um, Whereas, for example, a piece of broken glass would be a shard. So it's a specific term related to ceramics. So we're not just pronouncing words funny. Yeah. And not to be confused with the uh, delicious green Swiss churd. <laughs> Swiss churd. <laughs> that's, a, so, that's a fragment of the green. Yeah. Is a churd. <laughs> that's what's happening in my garden out there. Mm. Okay. When it comes to ceramics, I'm going to take you through the basics. You, me, one, can make (laughs) pottery by taking, here we go, certain kinds of dirt, adding water, shaping it into the desired shape, letting it dry, and then baking it at high temperatures, called firing, um, until chemical changes happen in the fabric of the ceramic itself. Those chemical changes cause the properties to transform slightly so that it is more Adorable. Um, <laughs> and won't dissolve back into mud when dis- exposed to liquid. Um, at like bare minimum, what you need in order to make pottery um, are three ingredients. Clay, a tempering agent, and water. So the water and clay are mixed to form a paste. So um, maybe when you took your art appreciation classes when you were a kid, <laughs> um, you may have had a like clay experience. A clay day. Yeah, a clay day. Um, I was lucky in this respect because they're, um, I grew up with someone whose mom is a um, ceramic artist. And so in third oh, grade, fun. she brought a bunch of clay and she taught us how to do stuff. And then she took it home and she fired it in her kiln. And um, I made... Hey, you have a treasure. Well, I have I have a, I have that from my seventh grade. So the first time we talked about this, I talked about that bowl that I made. I made that in seventh oh, grade yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's terrible looking. The thing that I made in third grade returned, uh, I remembered it. And it's just like a creepy clam. Why did you, why? I don't know. That is not what I was expecting. It was, I remember, yeah, it's like a little clown bust. 
like it's, third grade Amber was like, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I just freaked <laughs> everyone out, I guess. Um, I think it still exists. On probably in my parents' house somewhere. Um, but once you have that paste of clay and water, um, you add a, a, some other substance into strengthen the mix and improve firing characteristics. Um, <laughs> that's called temper. So clay is a type of soil. Clay is... Right. It's a specific a, type it's a of soil. silicate soil. Yeah. So your clay could have other stuff in with it. So it can have like little bits of rock or other stuff. So bug parts, bits of bugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, the other stuff is called inclusions and that includes the temper, uh, but not all temper is inclusions. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Stay with me here. So temper is the material that's intentionally put into the mix for a specific purpose. Um, so anything else is accidental and you just call that an inclusion and you get on with your time. Um, so lots of stuff, um, including like I said, like sand, gravel, gla- grass, I guess glass could too, insects, <laughs> ash from firing, all that stuff can get into the pot's mix. But what you what you want to do with the temper is, um, so if you look at bricks, if you ever looked at, if you're, surrounded by red brick buildings like i am here in the dc area um you'll see that like there are little holes like little pock marks um in those bricks and that's from um temper that has burned out so sometimes the temper um burns out and leaves air pockets behind um other times the temper doesn't burn out because it's something that's that's not ephemeral it's something that stays in there um and gives it some other quality either it's just there to work to keep it together to work as like the the egg in the meatloaf that you're making wow okay i wasn't sure where that was going yeah, but yeah, yeah i yeah, wasn't yeah. either um so sometimes <laughs> it it works like that other times it's I can't think of anything that you bake for you. Or, or so sometimes it's the vodka that you put into the pie crust. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> uh, so the point of temper is to strengthen yeah. the clay fabric. Yeah. So that you can make the thing that you want to make. Mm-hmm. So you don't just have like a lump and be like, I made a hard lump. Like, no, you can actually make a <laughs> thing with the shape. Um, How do you do that? You do that by shaping a pot. Um, so Great. the absolute most basic pottery is hand formed. So, you know, you like put a little bit in your hand, like in your palm and you sort of, and you pull inexplicably make a clown. You, <laughs> that's, that's what you do when you're eight years old. <laughs> so, um, you can, you pinch the edges into making a bowl shape, a more mm-hmm. advanced form. Like I did when I was in seventh grade is mm-hmm. made by coiling rolled out strips of clay into the final form and then you smooth the interior and exterior as you the potter goes along um if you are me in seventh grade you do this quite poorly um further advanced forms of pottery are thrown on a wheel uh, where you have a lump of clay um on something that's on a turntable and so you oh my love Okay, it's fair use. So you spin the lump of clay while you shape the vessel and you by thinning the wall and building up the vessel with a skilled and patient hand. I did not make it to this point in my ceramics career. (laughs) Um, So once you've got your pot shaped 
and dried to what one calls leather hard, where you just let the um, the like immediate moisture release from it, evaporate from it, and so then it's then it's not it's not really mushable, but it's not fired. It wouldn't, yet. yeah, and it would um, revert back to mushy clay if it you were to try dissolve, to store yeah. water in it. So yeah, um, not ideal. But this is a great point at which you can do uh, different things for um, decoration or functional purposes. So you can have um, a slip, which is so it's like the the clay substance, it's a, but it's, it's very a clay very wash. thin. Yeah, there mm-hmm. we go. It's a wash, um, and so you could put that on or you use a glaze, um, and the glaze has usually some kind of mineral substance in it, so that when it fires, um, the minerals in that glaze or slip bake onto the surface of your pot, and it helps seal it up, makes it waterproof, um, and usually glazes are selected for the color that they will impart so when you think about um fireworks like the what's contained in the little stars of um those are called stars the little balls inside fireworks okay yes that's a firework uh, but the little the little balls of um gunpowder that are inside them also have other types of minerals in them and when they are ignited and when they explode that color that's associated with them, um, that's the same thing that that's the same color that you would find in the glaze because it's a chemical it's a chemical reaction that's imparted by, by high heat mm-hmm. and it changes the color. Oh, uh, like aluminum, I think is white. Like, I think that's the sort of idea. And like copper, yeah, copper is, is usually blue, blue or green. Yeah, way long time ago when folks were um, sussing out how ceramics worked and how like the firing characteristics they found that not only could you um, make it waterproof um, and make it smooth you could also make it gorgeous colors depending on what you put in it and shiny form and function whoa (laughs) (laughs) i I was just thinking about all the times i've been to a paint your own pottery studio that's i've never been to one oh it's fun we should go We'll make some memorabilia. There's um there's a torpedo factory. What? In, it's it's an old torpedo factory. Oh. In Alexandria. Oh, that now I, is like I've a, heard about this. Like a um a studio space and they mm-hmm. do courses and stuff in ceramics. And my friends are telling me that maybe I should take a ceramics course. I think they want me to like not just be in my basement apartment. I mean, I as your friend say also that if that appeals to you, yeah, go for it. But it's outside. <laughs> Okay, well, while you're debating that, uh, let's move on. Pottery is one of the oldest human technologies. Fragments of clay pottery found in Hunan province in China have been carbon dated to 17,500 years old to 18,300 years old, which is pretty old. And the findings which (laughs) appear in the journal Science... empirically pretty old. Empirically real old. Uh, So the findings were published in the journal Science, and they add to recent efforts that have dated pottery piles in East Asia to more than 15,000 years ago, which is important because it refutes conventional theories that the invention of pottery correlates to around 10,000 years ago when humans really started moving from being hunter-gatherers to being more sedentary farming types. So the research by a team of Chinese and American scientists pushes the emergence of pottery way back to the last ice age. Call back to a couple of our recent episodes, actually. That means that this pottery was definitely in use by hunter-gatherers. 
So usually if you are leading a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, you live a pretty minimal life in terms of material possessions. So if you're following your food from place to place, you don't want to be weighed down by a lot of stuff. But if groups are staying in places seasonally, especially if they have established places that, that groups come back to year after year, then maybe if they were using ceramics, they left them when they left their campsites. And that was just those were the bowls and pots that they used when they were there. Or maybe they did travel with these things, but it was just a few key pieces. Either way, it's always really cool when archaeology um, reveals you know, a, a shift in the expectations about a particular technology and those expectations get reworked. There, there are actually a lot of different ways that archaeologists can analyze ceramics. Typically, it's four types of analysis. Um, experimental studies, form and function analysis, stylistic analysis, and technological analysis. So in experimental studies, archaeologists attempt to replicate the ancient methods of pottery making in the lab. So they can look at a piece of pottery, try and figure out how it was made, and then try and replicate that process to see if they come up with the same results. Um, and these studies can yield really valuable information about things like firing techniques, the temperature at which clay was fired, and about the properties of those slips and glazes that we just talked about. Archaeologists may also study present-day pottery making techniques in various cultures around the world to better understand how methods were used by traditional cultures. So I mentioned form and function analysis, and that's that's uh, sort of a, a a type of analysis called typology or or stylistic analysis. So Amber, um, why don't you talk us through that a little bit? Because that's something that's a little bit complicated and you understand it better than I do. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So um, stylistic or morphological analysis of ceramic materials uh, takes into account the form, the method of production, the decoration, um, and other physical features of the pottery in question. In the case of a type site, uh, which is usually the first site of a particular culture that was excavated, like we had Harappa mm -hmm. that became Harappan. Like even though like Harappa itself is not the the most Harappan site there is, that's really right, more like Mohenjo-Daro, um, yep. still like the name stuck. So when you have a type site that generally has a large amount of ceramic material excavated from a single place um, through several phases. Um, so like when we talked about um, Schliemann 
and Troy, the levels mm-hmm. of, of, of Troy. Um, so if you're pulling all of the ceramic material out and you are cataloging where it's coming from in the sequence, in theory, um, you can see changes over a long period of time. So, and then you can develop what's called a typology. Um, so you have this ceramic secret sequence or a ceramic chronology. Mm-hmm. Um, so chronologies aren't just sort of periods A, B, and C. Sometimes, sometimes it's synonymous with the phases during which this like X style of pottery is found. When future sites are excavated and researchers find similar ceramics, they can make a chronological or cultural connection um, between the new site and the other sites that feature the same pottery. However, there are, as you may already start to be thinking, there are limitations to ceramic typologies. Since ceramics can have lifetimes of several generations, you think about like folks who inherit China yeah, uh, grandma's like, dishes. Yeah. Um, people have always been into retro designs. Um, <laughs> so we call that archaizing traditions, like where you try, you go for an archaic style. It's just being retro. Um, and I'm into the mid-mod archaic style. <laughs> yeah. And so this is something that is, um, that comes up in, in, in Roman archaeology where there is a specific style of ceramics that, uh, was very popular at one point and then very popular much later. And the implications it came back. Uh, and, and also there's just coincidence because yeah. um, if you're, if this is something that's like a basic domestic wear that isn't highly stylized or decorated or, you know, it's just a pot and the, the dirt is coming other. from the same place. Cause you're yeah. still making it there. Like it's, there's, you can have the issue of confirmation bias where um, if, a researcher wants it to be from <laughs> from a certain place um they can project a lot more onto that pot than is warranted um case in point the painted grayware that's often attributed to the arrival of the Aryans, which we discussed and i guess we'll discuss again <laughs> sorry in deep cuts um, <laughs> um so Man. that's that's something where um it's seen and therefore rather than saying, oh, they made that here too, or, oh, they must have some kind of connection. It's seen as evidence for some kind of domination or um, arrival, like capital A arrival of something. So challenges aside, sometimes ceramic typologies are the best shot you've got at dating a site or identifying or trying to figure out who was kicking around uh, when you have absolute dating methods like radiocarbon dating, not as an option. Right. Because as we said, like ceramics can withstand a lot. So if, if everything, if everything, everything else is gone, else. Yeah. then sometimes that's all you've got. Technological analyses look at the materials from which the ceramic is made. So of chief interest to people doing that kind of research are the chemical are the chemical composition of the clay, the tempering materials, and the proportion of clay to temper. Technological analyses provide valuable data about variations in vessel form, classification systems, and the origins of the materials used to construct pots, because some people make pots from clay that comes from far away, or sometimes people are importing pottery that comes from far away. So there's an effort to kind of make some of those distinctions. Also, because pots, both as objects in themselves and as vessels for other 
commodities such as grain, oils, wine, and salt were very often trade objects. So technological analyses can reveal information about ancient trade routes and trading patterns. Something else that is used in technological analysis of pottery is neutron activation analysis. You could also use x-ray diffraction or ceramic petrology, which means looking at very, very thin slices of clay under a microscope, to identify trace elements in the clay or temper to gather information about the production, distribution, and disposal of ceramic artifacts. And this is something that I happen to know a bit about. Woohoo! Yeah. That's good, because I don't. Yeah. So um, ceramic analysis was at the heart of my undergraduate thesis, specifically on materials excavated at the site of Moela, which is in the United Arab Emirates. Now, it wasn't 3,000 years ago, uh, when the site dated to the Iron Age. So this is the local Iron Age. And it's thought to have been built around 900 BCE and destroyed by fire sometime around 600 BCE. Uh, so I worked with that team for a few years and I focused on ceramics. Um, so if you haven't heard already, the Iron Age in Southeastern Arabia was really popping off. Um, and <laughs> they had um, they had cash cannons but they just had like terabralia palustris shells coming out of them. That is the most incredibly niche joke I've ever heard. Um, Keep doing so, those finger guns, though. <laughs> um, so excavations at Moela and other sites throughout the region hint at a really complex network of trade, exchange, and innovation among the region and other major players of the time, including what's today in Iran and Yemen and in the Mesopotamian area, um, most likely thanks to the domestication of the dromedary camel. So mm -hmm. not the Bactrian camel, which had been nope. domesticated much earlier in Central Asia. This is the dromedary. This is the little one That's hump That's that guy. one hump. All of this stuff is showing up in excavations, and there are ceramics that look like they're coming from somewhere else. Um, they're not the sandy ware that is all over the place. Sandy ware, <laughs> not your middle school Receptionist. Lunch lady. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lunch lady. Yeah. My middle school uh, receptionist name, I think, was Kitty Miner. Oh, she mines for kitties. Kitty Miner. Yeah. Digging into uh, that ground. I found. I found the mother load. Oh, like Breezy. Oh. Um, shout out to Breezy, friend of the show, who's a cat. Um, <laughs> so there's Sandy Ware is the local, um, sort of basic ceramics that they've got all over the place at this point. Um, and there are complete vessels or diagnostic sherds. So a diagnostic sherd is a partial vessel that's complete enough to confirm the profile. So from the bottom of the pot up to the rim um, mm -hmm. and can tell you like what more or less what it was used for. Like you would know like this is what this type of pot was. Right. Um, and so these complete vessels and diagnostic shirts look like ceramics from other places. Um, and so when we sorted through the bags and bags and bags and bags and bags of shirts from previous seasons, uh, there were more foreign looking shirts popping up. And my job was to identify them, label them and set them aside for analysis. The thing that was exciting about all of this was that this corner of the world was mentioned frequently in the Bronze Age in documents from Mesopotamia. So not too, too long after the royal tombs of Ur days. So um, just like a couple sort of turnovers of power in Mesopotamia later is when they are <laughs> talking about um, this 
part of the world. Um, Southeastern Arabia at that point was known as Magan, um, and they got their copper from there. And so they got copper, they got soft stones like diorite for carving. So um, there's a very famous um, statue of Gudea of Lagash. He's a pious priest king. Um, and that's carved from diorite from Magan. Um, and it says as much. And they talk about it. And they talk about how Magan was also known for its ships. Sargon of Akkad had the the ships of Magan docked at his quayside. This was how he illustrated that he was sort of in control of the world. He's he had the, the best... He had the four corners of the world, like all in his pocket, in his keyside. Yeah, he's got Um, the whole world in his keyside. Yep. Um, So there's no question that Magan was tight with Mesopotamia, with the Indus Valley civilizations and the seafaring folks based in Dilmun, which is modern day Bahrain, um, because everybody is talking about it. Stuff from there is showing up. They're saying like, oh, we got this um, like Magan copper along with our shipment of Dilmun onions. Nobody knows what a Dillman onion is. Um, Besides delicious. I guess. Probably. Um, I, I guess. People were talking about them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, by the first millennium BCE, so this is like 1500-ish later, years later, um, in the Iron Age, Mesopotamia, which is now under the control of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, is where we get Sargon the Great, where he does a callback. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... The Neo-Assyrian Empire no longer got its copper from southeastern Arabia. Um, also, Magan was possibly used to describe another place entirely, maybe in Egypt. Um, but so they like weren't talking about Oman at all. Um, but because the Assyrians had conquered the eastern Mediterranean coast and they were trading with Cyprus for copper, their copper mm-hmm. it can also be found in Cyprus, um, it was cheaper and easier and more straightforward to just get it from like from Cyprus through this area that they had conquered to their west. Um, nobody talked about Southwest, Southeastern Arabia and the, um, and it, like it was never mentioned in any of the annals of places that bowed down before Assyria and gave them tribute and got all these perks. Okay. Um, and since the historical sources didn't mention Assyria dealing with them, they obviously weren't in contact. I guess not. Well, if that's the case, What's with all this smooth, white, very Assyrian-looking pottery doing down here in Moewa? Where'd it come from? And what about all this speckly gray Dilmany stuff? What's going on? Enter INAA, which sounds like a UN like subbody, but it's not. Um, so I'm going to tell you about instrumental neutron activation analysis. And I'm pulling this from the Oxford Handbook of Archaeological Ceramic Analysis. Woo. I know, some light reading. Um, if I had a copy of this, I would put it on my toilet to go with Snakes of Arabia, which is my, <laughs> the bathroom reading I offer people. <laughs> I, can't, I don't understand why you don't have more guests. <laughs> So, um, INAA is one of the most widely used analytical methods for bulk chemical characterization of ceramic pastes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. owing to its relatively simple sample preparation procedures, the small sample mass required, and low detection limits for most elements of interest. At least 50 major, minor, and trace elements spanning the main geochemical element groups can be readily determined to the percent PPM or PPB level, so that's the parts per million or parts per billion level, um, mm-hmm. although sensitivity varies by element. 
Same. Yes. Um, and <laughs> so for my research, um, I prepared samples, which was indeed very easy. You just put them in a little bag and you say, here you go. Um, <laughs> so I, I submitted for testing my pile of foreign looking shirts, um, as well as shirts of what's called eggshell wear um, that was excavated from inside the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. So around the so around the time that. Nineveh was sacked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the capital. It's up in northern Mesopotamia. Um, and eggshell wear is it's it's smooth and it's thin and it's white. Much like uh, much like an, an eggshell. Egg and it's um it's a it's sort of like a bougie domestic wear. Oh, um, OK. And so it's it's a lot of cups and bowls and things. It's very it's very pretty. Um, mm-hmm. It's a. Sounds it's nice. Great stuff. Um, so that had been excavated in Nineveh. Um, and then also sherds from a site called Kalat al-Bahrain, which is a it's in Bahrain. Um, and it's a very <laughs> significant Dolmen settlement on Bahrain. So the idea, just so to make sure I understand, okay. you had this stuff from your site, Moela, which mm-hmm. looked like it didn't belong there. Like it looked like it was imported from elsewhere. Yeah. But you weren't sure if it was locals copying stuff from elsewhere or if it actually was imported. Exactly. And so that's why you had those comparative samples. Yeah. Okay. It's helpful to have the comparative samples for um, the next step um, that that I took. So um, every place on earth has a different chemical makeup. Like mm-hmm. every place, just like how we've talked about before, we can figure out where you grew up based on the strontium isotopes in your teeth. So like as your, your teeth form, like the strontium mm-hmm. that's put there, um, we can figure out where pots are from by the dirt used to make them. Makes sense. So it's the same kind of, the same kind of idea. So, mm-hmm. um, I compared the data that I got back from my, um, uh, from the, the lab um, to data from material excavated in southeastern Arabia, um, so stuff that was local to the site, um, and I used my good friend Microsoft Excel to plot ratios of a handful of isotopes. So there are some some elements are kind of uniform wherever, or it's like totally ran. It doesn't mean a whole lot, but there are some okay. that vary significantly, and so okay. you you plot a ratio of one one isotope to another isotope like for every one part per million of this one you've got 13 parts per billion of this one and so you plot that ratio across all of your samples it produces a scatter plot um, and so you see clumps of data so you see these clumps of dots and like clumps of triangles, clumps of So those are squares. like groups of samples. So yeah, those are groups of samples that have similar ratios mm-hmm. of isotope A to isotope B. And so there were two exciting things about the results. The foreign looking ceramics definitely were not local. Okay. So I mean, it it's a sort of thing that's like, yeah, duh. If you look at it, it looks completely different, but you can't. But, but you're, it's but confirmed. It, you yeah, just but confirmed it, yeah. it. But looking completely different is not the same thing as saying like, no, it is definitely not from yeah. this dirt. So this this um, chemically proves that they are not from yeah, local. They're not play. from here. But the foreign looking ceramics plotted very closely to one another, like okay, within so their they, respective appearances. They were so made the from stuff the that, same stuff. The stuff that looked Mesopotamian, all of those pieces, all of those samples were more similar than they were to 
the, the local Moelan. stuff. Okay. All of the stuff that looked um, like it was from Bahrain, like looked more similar to itself than to either of the other two. Okay. And they plotted closely to their respective comparison samples. And so, boom, science. Science. So we successfully, in, in doing that research, um, we successfully <laughs> complicated the narrative and once Great. again proved that historical records only tell part of the story. Um, so Muela was only occupied for a few centuries. Um, and it, so it's a single stratum site. So you have stuff was built, people lived there, they worked there, they did whatever. Um, and then there was a fire and it burned down. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, the, my professor joked that like someone burned the falafel and it, like got out of Catastrophically. Hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Muela was only occupied for a few centuries and despite it not being on the coast and despite it not being worth mentioning in Assyrian records, ceramics made in Mesopotamia and Bahrain, two of the like most it places in oh, so Western right Asia now. at this point. Well, not um, right now. And presumably the materials inside them and the people using them were in Moela. So, boom. Boom. So, just with a few bits of ceramics that, you, like, did told a whole other part of the story. Yeah, that didn't look like much. And this is why I love ceramics so much. Because I you love get so much out of them. In theory. Yeah. We'll put... Um, I found some photos. I was I was looking for a specific photo, and I just found a bunch of photos of me doing ceramics um, at Moela. So we'll put some up on Yay! the Instagram so you can see baby Amber oh, putting together a, a baby. pot. No, I love ceramics in theory, but I I, I, I did take a ceramic petrology class, and I it wasn't for me. And so ceramic petrology, if mm. I remember correctly, is where you take like a micro slice and then you mm -hmm. look at it and you're like, oh, yeah. quartz. So that made a lasting impact on you. Clearly. <laughs> and that's why I study animal bones. So back to the ceramics. Yeah. Um, so not all ceramics are fired. I know we just spent all this time saying how important it is to fire ceramics because otherwise they turn back into mush, but sometimes you're not able to fire things. For example, if you don't have enough fuel to create a fire that reaches temperatures high enough to uh, transform the ceramic material, yeah, uh, you don't fire your clay. Ceramics have to be fired at super hot temperatures. Yeah, something like 700 Celsius is yeah. the low end of that. Yeah. Which like, this I is hotter can't do than the conversion like your, in my head, but it's your like fancy pizzas. Yeah, like yeah, super even, hot. Yeah, pizza, the temperature is 700 Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. I know my pizza temperatures. But if you can't fire your ceramics, sometimes you can still make ceramics that work. And there's a really cool example of this from Arctic tradition, and that is a blood pottery. Um, and so this is from the abstract of a 2009 article by Karen G. Harry and others in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory. Jam Jamped. <laughs> so the article is titled, How to Make an Unfired Clay Cooking Pot, Understanding the Technological Choices Made by Arctic Potters. So here's that abstract. Between about 500 CE and the late 19th century, clay cooking pots associated with the Thule culture were produced in the Arctic region. Ethnographic and archaeological records indicate that these vessels were typically underfired, often even unfired, highly porous, and easily broken. 
Despite these characteristics, the evidence indicates that they were used to heat water over open fires. In this paper, we examine how Arctic potters were able to produce unsintered vessels capable of holding liquids without disintegrating. We conclude... They were were unsintered, so they were like wobbly? (laughs) Unsintered, so u-n-s-i-n-t-e-r-e-d which means that the the clay particles didn't fuse right they didn't the, they weren't heated at a high enough temperature to um change the chemical properties that's what sintering is so like the the what happens to sand when it becomes glass that's technically i believe that's called vitrifying but it's the same idea but the same idea of that it, mm-hmm. it changes to something that is it actually changes solid the material and, properties okay. so yeah mm-hmm. exactly um so to finish the abstract, we conclude that the application of seal oil and seal blood to the pot surface was the key to their success. And, and then a quote that I really enjoyed from um, the article, quote, these Arctic cooking pots break nearly every engineering rule about how a ceramic cooking pot should be constructed, end quote. So that's cool. So uh, that really made me want to read more about these pots. So the Thule tradition, as in the material culture associated with the Thule people, lasted from about 200 BCE to 1600 CE around the area of the Bering Strait. And so the Thule people, we actually talked about them in uh, briefly in our sort of peopling of the Americas side note of the of our climate episode. And they were the prehistoric ancestors of the Inuit who now live in northern Labrador. And also in Canada brief point of information since this mm. is unfortunately um, relevant to us right now to listeners in the u.s mm. um, so the Thule tradition is um, is found in greenland um, there is a, a i think it's an air force base there's Thule base which is mm-hmm. a u.s base in greenland mm-hmm. um and also, there are people who live in Greenland. Um, there are like the two, like descendants of yeah, yeah. Thule so just yeah. there are um, human beings who are living in Greenland. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and we've talked about this how just because the Maya civilization really no longer exists as as the entity it once did, that doesn't mean there aren't still Maya people, right? It's the exact same idea. It doesn't mean that there aren't still. Too yeah. many people. And when um, thinking about <laughs> these places yeah. and thinking about how they fit into larger narratives, L- do remember Sometimes. that there are people <laughs> that live in these places mm-hmm. and do think about them even when they're not given any voice whatsoever in any of the narratives. No. Go so on. speaking of speaking of that narrative that uh, was created by someone else. The ancient Thule culture was first mapped out by a guy named Terkel Matthiasen. Terkel, that's a great name. <laughs> Following his participation as an archaeologist and cartographer of the fifth Danish, fifth Danish expedition. Did you call him a cartographer? <laughs> Did I? Terkel, the cartographer. Ermagerd, Ermagerd, cartographer. Wow. We're we're getting back at this podcasting thing. How do we do this again? Go on. (laughs) Uh, He was a member of the fifth Danish expedition (laughs) to to Arctic America between 1921 and 1924. So he excavated sites on Baffin Island and the northwestern Hudson Bay region, which he considered to be the remains of a highly developed Eskimo whaling culture that had originated in Alaska and moved to Arctic Canada around a thousand years ago. 
So the authors of this uh, blood pottery paper did a big comparison of references to Arctic pottery in ethnographic literature. And so um, I'm quoting here from the article. Attributes of Thule sherds indicate that the production techniques described in the ethnographic accounts were a continuation of those used during prehistory. The pastes are often porous, a result of using organic temper and a low firing process. Inorganic tempering agents are present as well, and the sherds often exhibit thick organic rinds, like those produced experimentally when oil or blood is added to a pot's surface. The ceramics also reflect substantial variation in firing technology. Whereas uncarbonized hair and plant fibers have been observed in some Thule sherds, suggesting that they had not been fired highly enough to combust these materials, attributes of other ceramics suggest that they had been exposed to high enough temperatures to at least begin the sintering process. So the official definition of sintering is powdered or granular material exposed to a high heat and compression and coalescing into a solid mass. So yes, very much like what happens to sand when you heat it really hot. The researchers then did some experimental archaeology, and that must have been really fun. But um, instead of making pots, you know, in order to be consistent in laboratory conditions, they made clay tiles. So they used the same clay and temper for each tile, but then treated the surfaces of the groups of tiles differently. So they had five groups of these tiles, and the samples had no surface treatment at all, or an application of seal oil before firing, or an application of seal oil after firing, or applications of seal oil both before and after firing, and then finally, the application of seal blood before firing. So they found that each coating technique had different properties based on which stage of pre or post firing uh, it was applied and also what was applied. Their results show that the application of seal blood and seal oil to these pots substantially decreased the time needed to bring water to a boil. The effect was greatest with the application of seal blood, despite the fact that most of the blood appeared to have oxidized off of the pots during firing. So they actually didn't know why that helped so much with pots being able to hold temperature, like to hold heat and, and boil water faster. I wonder if any that has anything to do with the iron content in the blood. I have no idea. But hmm. um, I did also read, I, I sort of fell down an internet hole, but um, seal blood at certain times of the year apparently is so thick that it is used as a natural glue. And so often these groups uh, kept powdered seal blood um, and they could moisten it with a little bit of saliva and it would re rehydrate into this very thick, sticky gluey substance. And so it was used as an adhesive. Um, So maybe there's something about the properties of blood, which maybe it has to do with helping seals keep warm in Arctic temperatures. I really don't know. But um, it's super interesting that it it has this effect on pottery and that people developed this technology, like they realized the effect that it had and and, um, created these different types of firing techniques. That's super cool. That's so cool. Well, we have to go to a break, but could you take us out to break on um, a seal's take on this. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. 
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. Hey, Anna. Hey, what? Do you want to hear something cute? Yeah. About pottery? <laughs> I want to tell you a story first, though. Fine. No, but it says. I know. It's in the script. Okay, I don't have to tell the story. <laughs> no, tell me the story. Because <laughs> I forgot it from the last time I told you. <laughs> So remember how I did that ceramic petrology class that I enjoyed so much? Yeah. Um, one part of it that I actually really did enjoy was that, um, so I was in school in Massachusetts at the time, and we went to the Harvard Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, and they have um, an annex that's really full of all the stuff that's not on display in the museum, as so many museums do, and we got to tour it. And so we were specifically looking at Mimbrace pottery, which is from the American Southwest, and we saw this collection of bowls, two of which were very large and had, you know, they were beautifully painted with this black and white um, glaze and they had images of little turtles on them. And then right next to them, and they had been found next to these larger bowls, were two kind of wobbly little bowls with sort of slightly poorly painted One had turtles a clown on, them. on it. One had a clown on it. Um, but the, it was explained to us that this was an example of someone teaching younger potters to make the same types of vessels and designs. So it was just like a smaller kid's version. It was clearly someone learning to do the same thing. And I thought oh, that was so, so cool and so that cute. That is so cute. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Well, along the same lines of cute and ceramics, yep. in a 2001 issue of the Journal of Anthropological Research, JAR, Jar. Um, Catherine A. Camp um, published Prehistoric Children Working and Playing, a Southwestern Case Study in Learning Ceramics. Um, And so it's based on the ceramic analysis of um, artifacts from the Sinagua area of northern Arizona. Guess it's pretty dry there. Pretty dry. Um, there's archaeological evidence of a learning sequence that, at least for some, probably began in childhood play and culminated in economically productive ceramic manufacture well before adulthood. Well, my dad would so, be so proud of them. He's um, <laughs> <laughs> a big fan of economic productivity. Um, as individuals learn a new craft, they acquire both new concepts and motor skills. Um, some of the learning process may be focused on the purely physical aspects of small or large muscle coordination or endurance. Um, for example, Alouette groups in the Arctic had special games and exercises designed to provide the skills needed to hunt at sea and to develop the flexibility of tendons and ligaments required sitting long hours in a kayak. Um, and so there may be some constraints on certain types of skill acquisition since the coordination strength needed for certain tasks isn't possible until some degree of physical development has occurred. Children below a minimal, a minimum age may be unable to participate effectively. Yeah, can you imagine like a one year old just eating clay? To, yeah, just <laughs> eating clay. Yeah, um, yep. <laughs> the same may be true of the sick elderly, or individuals with physical limitations. Nevertheless, practice and instruction will affect the timing and extent of motor development. Um, It's not a biological constant. Right. Um, And so um, Camp's 
article goes on to describe some of the attributes that might clue in, clue one into whether a pot was made by a learner or an expert. These include whether or not the pot was large or small, whether its thickness was uneven or consistent, if there were drying cracks, um, you know, all all the things that one would notice in my clay clown. Um, (laughs) And so sometimes um, developmental psychology can provide an insight where abstract thinking and motor skill development are concerned. Um, And... She says, certain types of errors may be age-related. The ability to conceive, plan, and execute painted designs on ceramics is developmental and may be used to discern the products of children. Thus, if the concept of symmetry is not understood by children until the ages of four or five, only asymmetrical designs would be possible for this age. Similarly, the ability to adequately merge the coils of a vessel, for example, may depend on the acquisition of sufficient finger strength as well as the understanding that it is necess- that this is necessary for vessel strength and aesthetics. Tiny this would fingers. Su- yeah. This would suggest that vessels with poorly sealed coils might have been made by an amateur, <laughs> though such a- assertions are obviously speculative. Shots fired at <laughs> seventh grade me. <laughs> well, to be fair, you weren't being taught for hours was, and hours and hours every day by I no were you just a couple hours that one day yeah so I mean thanks you can hardly be expected to be economically productive at that point you hear that Dad? but <laughs> this is a really neat way to capture this aspect of a social group though because in the archaeological record it's often very difficult to get at childhood the lives of children particularly in cultures or times where Children are viewed as kind of mini adults. So they're, you know, from the time that they're very young, they're given jobs to do because everyone needs to be contributing in order for the group to have enough resources. So getting to see concrete or clay evidence of the learning process and the presence of children is extremely cool. Yeah. I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Do you have the clown? I want to see a picture of the clown. I think I know where it could be. <laughs> okay. Well, um, to finish things off, I we do, do have, have the, I do have my my very bowl. my crap bowl. Um, I keep my sewing notions in it. <laughs> sewing notions. Yeah. <laughs> so folksy. Okay. Um, so for our book club this week, yeah, we are y'all not have had plenty to- of time to finish those books we've assigned. <laughs> we've assigned. Oh Lord, <laughs> I haven't even read some of them. <laughs> Um, So we're not going to give you the Oxford Guide to Ceramic, whatever it was. Uh, You're welcome. What we do have for you this week is... Snakes of Arabia. Not Snakes of Arabia, although if you find a copy, go ahead and pick it up. Put it on your toilet. It's very good. I don't want to think about snakes in proximity to a toilet. I don't like that. But I mean, if one showed up and it was from Arabia, you'd be able to identify it. Yeah, great. Be like, oh, thank God. Non-venomous. Yeah. Great. Okay. So this book is instead of snakes. It's a Caldecott honor kids book and it's called When Clay Sings by Bird Baylor. Uh, it is from the 1970s, but it is still uh, kind of neat. So here is the blurb from the back of the book. Pieces of broken pots are scattered over the desert hillsides of the Southwest. The Indians there treat them with respect. Quote, every piece of clay is a piece of someone's life, end quote they say. And the children try to imagine those lives that took place in the desert they think of as their own. 
Clay has its own small voice and sings. Its song has lasted for thousands of years, and Bird Baylor's prose poem, as simple and powerful as the clay pots, sings too. So, hello, I 1970s. Pots. I love pots. Do you love pots? I love pots. Well, I have my hopefully own prose by now, poem about them in my manuscript. <laughs> well, hopefully, first of all, hopefully people get to read that soon, someday. Uh, and hopefully yeah. our listeners have enjoyed our prose poem podcast. And that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, firstly, for bearing with us while we dealt with our technical issues and had a little break. And thank you, as always, for listening. We will be back in your ears very soon with new episodes, which you can find, as usual, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your pods. Yeah. And you can do us do us a real real big solid by helping or reviews. <laughs> Put reviews and stars at all those places. Reviews, Please stars, do. follows. Hype it up. Thank you. Woo-hoo. And you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that comes together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And hey, do you have hey. clay pots? Email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and just a shout out to the American Anthropological Association. Uh, their annual meeting is coming up in November, and we plan to be there. So we. Look forward to developing that. Yeah, and you can find our friends in their library of podcasts there. Yeah, and speaking of libraries of podcasts, an additional shout out to the Archaeology Podcast (laughs) Network. Thanks for having us. And also check out the other excellent shows on that network. Yeah, and hopefully you had ample opportunity to check out those shows while my computer didn't work. Um, Mm. And we put out extra bonus content. God willing, uh, for our Patreon subscribers over on the Patreon. You can get access to bonus goodies like video content and extra whole episodes um, for as little as a dollar a month or as much as all the money at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. I just really love pots. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.